This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Should the U.S. now be saying don't trust but verify? The lead starts right now. The Russian government claims it is starting a troop drawdown, but does one quick Russian government video constitute sufficient proof? What the White House is now saying about Vladimir Putin's plans to possibly invade Ukraine. Plus, coming soon, new CDC guidance on masking. But is it too little too late as states and cities are continuing to do their own thing? And a shocking surprise. An eagle-eyed police officer looks under the stairs of a home only to find a little girl who's been missing for two years. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead and signs that Russia might not have been telling the full truth when it claimed to be removing troops from the border with Ukraine. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. has seen no meaningful pullback of Russian forces, despite despite videos such as this one we're showing you right now from the Russian Ministry of Defense claiming to portray at least a partial drawdown. And a Ukrainian intelligence report obtained exclusively by CNN shows the Russian troop buildup is still continuing, though the intelligence report does note that Ukraine does not believe the current level of Russian forces is enough to effectively stage a full invasion of that country. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us now, members of the Biden administration today talked with allies around the globe as they all look and pray for signs Russia is serious about de-escalation. There's you know, what Russia says, and there's what Russia does. A second day of Russian troop withdrawal announcements. What we're seeing is no uh, meaningful pullback. A second day of skepticism from U.S. and allied officials. We continue to see uh, not only these forces massed, we continue to see um, critical units moving toward the border, not away from the border. The urgency, crisis, showing no signs of dissipating as 150,000 Russian troops continue to ring Ukraine's border. We have uh, heard the signs from Moscow about uh, readiness to continue diplomatic uh, efforts. But so far, uh, we have not uh, seen any de-escalation on the ground. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Brussels for a meeting of allied defense ministers. President Biden spoke by phone with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. The door continues to be open to diplomacy. It is moving forward uh, diplomatic conversations on many channels. That call coming one day after Schultz met with Russian President Vladimir Putin, a meeting closely watched by U.S. officials looking for any clear signal of Putin's intentions after days of mixed messages. But as the Russian Ministry of Defense released unverified video to back their drawdown claims, U.S. officials remain on a state of high alert. One day after President Biden's most detailed remarks on the crisis to date. An invasion remains distinctly possible. Remarks that drew rare praise from congressional Republicans. It was much in the president's remarks that I appreciated. For Biden, who served as the point man for President Barack Obama during the last Russian incursion into Ukraine, a deeply personal issue, officials tell CNN, and one he's been intensely engaged in for weeks. We do not stand for freedom. Where it is at risk today will surely pay a steeper price tomorrow. 
But as Ukraine observed a day of unity, on a day it was rumored that Russian forces planned to attack, a decision to relocate the CIA station in Kyiv, just the latest move, underscoring, sustained, and palpable U.S. concern. We're in the window where we believe an attack could come at any time. And Jake, with U.S. officials still waiting for any verified information about troop uh, withdrawals, they are also waiting for any signals on the diplomatic side of things. Russia still has not responded in writing to U.S. security uh, proposals that were sent a few weeks ago. The expectation is those could come in the next couple of days, but so far, nothing, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's go to our team on the ground in Ukraine. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in the capital of Kiev, and CNN's Alex Marquardt is in the key port city of Mariupol. Alex, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited uh, Mariupol today. What, what did he have to say? Yeah, Jake, he was on a tour for this day of unity. He started up north and then he came down south. He visited a National Guard base. He thanked National Guard troops for their service. He handed out medals. He was uh, accompanied by a number of European diplomats. Um, and he got, went on to uh, the... He, Sorry, Jake. Um, he this this day of unity came about, remember, because uh, he had made this sarcastic comment a couple days ago saying that he didn't believe that this attack would happen today on Wednesday, the 16th. So why not have this day of national unity? And today he told the troops uh, that that they were ready to fight, that, that, that no matter what would happen on the 16th, 17th or 18th, no matter what, they were ready to defend Ukraine. Take a listen. We are not intimidated by any predictions of war, any people, enemies, or any dates, because we will defend ourselves, whether it is February 16th, 17th, in March, April, or September, or December. It's not important. What's important is this is year 2022, not 2014. We've become much stronger. And that is a point that we have heard repeatedly from Ukrainians that over the course of the past eight years, they have become much stronger, not just because they've been getting this influx of weapons from the West, but they have uh, experience. They, they have been fighting not about 15 miles away from here against Russia-backed forces for the past eight years. Um, they have uh, seen Crimea seized from them. And this is also why, Jake, uh, when you ask Ukrainians whether they are afraid, uh, why, why they are not panicking, they say this is something that we have been living with for eight long years. And so uh, this is something that is not necessarily weighing on their mind. Jake. All right, Clarissa, tell us about this Ukrainian intelligence report, which CNN obtained exclusively. It, it downplays the ability of the Russian military to stage a full-blown invasion. But I have to ask, is it not just as likely that Russia could stage a smaller invasion, seizing a smaller part of land? Yeah, so what's interesting about this report, Jake, is that it forms the same conclusion as the U.S. in terms of the number of Russian troops around this country, 148,000. It puts it at Biden had said yesterday uh, it was roughly 150,000. But it draws a starkly different conclusion on the matter of whether that would be sufficient to launch an all-out invasion. Of course, as you mentioned, there are many possible permutations here. It doesn't have to be an all-out invasion. It could be a land corridor uh, trying to link Russia to Crimea. That would actually go right through the city where Alex is 
currently standing in Mariupol. But I think what you're seeing here is that the Ukrainian leadership really wants to try to reframe this crisis a little bit, because for them, the issue and the threat and the destabilizing factor here is not just the potential possibility of an all-out invasion, but what is already happening right now. Uh, Economically, the country has suffered tremendously with foreign investment, particularly low at the moment, with people watching nervously, seeing events playing out on the ground. There have been cyber attacks. There is a constant, perpetual flow of misinformation. And so, as Alex was saying, the leadership here is used to living in the shadow of Russian aggression. It's used to uh, being, you know, the victim of a number of different threats. And I think the feeling is that the longer the exclusive focus is on this threat of all-out invasion, the easier it is to forget the pervasive actions that are already ongoing and which are already having a detrimental effect on this country, Jake. Mm. And Alex, CNN has just obtained new satellite images showing construction projects in Belarus right near the Ukrainian border, and these could be used potentially by Russia in a possible invasion, right? This just adds, Jake, to the doubt over what Russia is saying about pulling their troops back. What we are seeing and what we are being told uh, from sources and from satellite imagery is that virtually overnight, this pontoon bridge appeared uh, over a key river in southern Belarus. It's uh, a pontoon bridge that would allow uh, forces, uh, vehicles to get across. Um, It is another indication that they are continuing to build infrastructure uh, like bridges, like hospitals. Um, You know, Jake, I was speaking with uh, a a spokesperson for President Zelensky earlier today. He said they are seeing these troop movements, but it's far too early to tell uh, what exactly they mean. Are they drawing down? Are they not? The Ukrainians have seen the Russians uh, draw down before, only to see them build back up again. And this bridge in Belarus, which we should remind, remind our viewers, is just to the north of Ukraine being just four miles away from that border would only facilitate the ability of Russian forces to quickly cross that border and head into Ukraine, the capital Kiev being just a short drive from the border with Belarus. Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in Kiev, Ukraine, Alex Marquardt in Mariupol, Ukraine. Thanks to both of you joining us now in studio to discuss Beth Sanner, the former deputy director of national intelligence from 2019 until September 2021. Beth, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. So what do you think about this Ukrainian intelligence report uh, asserting that Russia doesn't have the manpower at 150,000 for for a full-scale invasion. I think that Clarissa just laid out this this dilemma, right? Um, There are three options on the table right now. Invasion, diplomacy, and something in between. No peace, no war. And we're seeing kind of all of those play out. So I'm not sure that the numbers really matter because what's happening right now is we're playing out, we're seeing this middle strategy this pressure on Ukraine. But all options are on the table. And as the NATO Secretary General said today, more troops are coming in. So, you know, are they going to be at 175 or 178 or whatever? Eventually, they probably will be. um, But there are lots of permutations on the table. So former National Security Advisor and U.N. Ambassador John Bolton said something similar uh, yesterday. He he does not think a full-scale invasion is the most likely outcome. Instead, a a smaller invasion. Take a listen. I think it's more likely Putin will slice up Ukraine, take more of the eastern part, take the northern shore of the Black Sea and the port of Odessa and landlock uh, uh, Ukraine. It won't be a full-out invasion. And then people will say, 
Uh, the risk is people will say, is that all there is? That's not so bad. And the sanctions will not be as sweeping as Biden has promised. What do you think? Well, I think the big picture here is that Putin does not want an independent Ukraine. He wants a subservient Ukraine. So there are different ways of going about that. I actually think that just taking a slice off the Donbass um, is maybe not as likely because it doesn't solve the core problem of Ukraine and Ukrainians wanting to anchor themselves in the West. So I think that we could see this drag out for a little while, the diplomatic option trying to get different angles of getting that subservient Ukraine. The Minsk agreement is all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so can he, by doing a small invasion, cause the Ukrainian government to collapse and put a puppet in? That's how that scenario would play out. So it's possible. I, I am at, of the mind that probably a direct invasion in the next few days is less likely as he's pushing this diplomatic angle. And we saw the Chinese foreign ministry come out today and say, you got to negotiate Minsk. So Russia says it's removing some troops from the Ukrainian border. U.S. and European officials say there are no signs this is actually happening uh, yet. Surely Putin knows that the West can confirm whether or not he's telling the truth. Um, Maybe it's naive to even ask, but what does he have to gain by just lying about these things? You know, uh, Putin is a person who lives in a world of disinformation, and there are different audiences. Right now, what I'm seeing a lot of is the discourse in Russia, which is completely controlled by state TV, is building up this narrative of, you know, the Russias are the good guys. We want peace. We don't intend to invade. And in fact, it's Zelensky that is, you know, threatening genocide. Um, You have RT, Russia TV people crying on television saying that genocide is going to happen. We need to invade um, so I think it's part of this building Putin up, looking like a statesman, and he's saying, well, you know, I'm still pulling out. It's too soon for you to make that judgment. All right, Beth Sander, thank you so much for your insights. We really appreciate it. Weapons you can see and weapons you cannot. Ukraine is now trying to determine who was behind the largest cyber attack in that country's history. Then, a staircase shocker, how police found a little girl who'd been missing for two years right under their feet, literally. Stay with us. 6 with the world lead, uh, today officials in Ukraine telling CNN that yesterday's cyber attack was the largest ever in that country's history. The attack temporarily blocking online access to Ukraine's defense ministry, as well as to two prominent banks. Those websites are now back up. Despite Russia's history with these kinds of attacks, Ukraine says it is too early to tell who was definitely responsible. CNN anchor Aaron Burnett is live in Lviv in western Ukraine for us. And Aaron, today the Ukrainian military released... New footage of their own Air Force drills at bases near you, as locals there say, they're also getting ready in case Russia invades. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Ukrainian military now, Jake, trying to counter with their own video, right, of putting out that they're getting ready. Um, You know, as you know, yesterday we spoke to a bunch of men who are very, very adept with guns, who are training to be, you know, guerrillas and a militia. Today we went to a recruitment center. Uh, You know, it was a day of unity here, hastily called to be sure, but a day of unity to see what was happening at the recruiting center. Uh, And so we saw a couple of men signing up. Um, And what's interesting is a new law here, Jake, passed on January 1st for national resistance. So they are now, just since January 1st, trying to create 25 additional new brigades to basically protect local cities and towns, right, in the the event of street warfare, essentially. 
And they're just starting now, right? So these people are just joining. They're certainly not trained. Gives you a sense of sort of the, the upward slope that there is to go. But spoke to one man, Taras Itchik, who joined in November and is now basically taking on building the 103rd Brigade here in the Lviv region. And I just wanted to give you a sense so you understand sort of the passion that they bring to this, how much they care about defending their homes uh, and their streets. Here he is. We built our brigade very fast because uh, because it's it's very hard times now. People need to protect their homes. They need to fight with Russian aggression. I understood that I'm not ready for this. And what can I do to to be ready, actually? And th- this was this was my decision. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's uh, helped me to. Uh, to sleep in the night. Jake, that's what we've, we've heard from, from all the young men that we've spoken to. By the way, he said the recruits are anywhere between the ages of 18 and 57 of people who are joining. Uh, we saw a former veteran uh, come in, had to be in his 20s, but had, had already fought in Crimea uh, coming in. It is this, 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 this palpable feeling that they don't feel they're ready, but that they are going to be ready and that they are willing to fight literally on their streets. And, and, and you just, again, you just hear that again and again from every single person uh, that you meet here. It's a pretty consistent uh, feeling of, of a resistance that will be very, very firm. Aaron Burnett in Western Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Be sure to watch more of Aaron this evening as she anchors out front from Ukraine. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Let's bring in Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He's among the group of Republicans introducing their own bill to sanction Russia after bipartisan efforts to do so stalled. Senator, good to see you again. I want to start with that cyber attack yesterday. Ukraine says the attack was the largest in its history. Couple that with the U.S. today saying Russian hackers have been breaching American defense contractor systems for the last two years and collecting intelligence one wonders if Putin's cyber capabilities might actually be more of a global threat uh, than any troop buildup along Ukraine's border. Well, there's no question that the Russians have invested very heavily in developing an offensive cyber capability. They use it, they test it all the time, and it's a very, it's a formidable threat. And they are, in all likelihood, deploying it now. And um, unfortunately, uh, that's, uh, you know, that's a problem for the Ukrainians. It's one of the areas where, where we can help Ukraine. So Republicans have gone at it alone on a bill to sanction Russia, including sanctions before any invasion happens. Your Democratic colleague, Senator Mark Warner, said the Democrats might have been on board with the proposal Republican Lindsey Graham uh, floated. Take a listen. You could say, all right, here are the sanctions that are go in immediately. Um, before even any invasion, but still give the president some level of, a, of an ability to kind of waive those uh, and give him some, some uh, discretion. That's actually what Senator Lindsey Graham had proposed. I think we could have gotten there on that. Uh, unfortunately, some of the hardliners in the Republican camp weren't willing to go along with that uh, uh, compromise approach. So Senator Toomey, what's your response to that? And what was wrong with the proposal from Senator Graham? Well, um, let me just tell you what this bill does, and I think the bill is very, very constructive. Um, what it does is accelerates military aid uh, to Ukraine. It uh, accelerates and enhances their ability to defend themselves from cyber attacks. It prevents the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline from becoming operational, and that's, in my mind, very, very important. Um, and then if there is an invasion, it's devastating sanctions that are much tougher post-invasion 
than the sanctions contemplated by our Democratic colleagues in the administration. And specifically, Jake, the category that I think is most important and the big difference between our two approaches is in our bill, we impose secondary sanctions on Russian banks. And what that does, that has the effect of really shutting down the Russian economy, probably crashes the ruble, makes it very difficult for them to sell even oil and gas anywhere in the world. Um, that's, that's the devastating uh, consequence that we think is appropriate if they were to actually invade Ukraine, uh, which they may well do. And that's different. Uh, that is not in our Democratic colleagues' bill. The, uh, the, I've asked the White House before about their opposition to the previous sanctions regime proposed by uh, Republicans, and they said that in order to keep Germany on board and happy in the NATO coalition, and obviously they're a very important player, uh, ending the Nord Stream 2 pipeline before any invasion would be a real problem. How, how do you figure that out? So right now, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is not operational. And my understanding is the Germans are not in the process of making it operational. So sanctioning it doesn't really change the fact that it's not operational. And that's a good place for it to stay. Look, there's a diplomatic challenge that the administration has in keeping NATO united. It's true that some European countries have gotten themselves overly dependent on Russian gas especially. That was a very bad idea, and that's, that's going to be a challenge to work our way through. But, but look, a, a military invasion of a sovereign state uh, on, the, on the edge of Western Europe is, is completely unacceptable. And we've got, here's the thing, this is the way I think about it, Jake. Our goal, if Putin were to make this mistake and invade Ukraine, our goal has to be that he eventually comes to the conclusion that that was a mistake and that he never should have done it. And by the way, President Xi in China ought to come to that same conclusion. Because if they don't come to that conclusion, then we've got much more trouble ahead. And to me, uh, that's, that's the goal, and that's going to take a really tough sanctions regime. Let me ask you about another uh, issue. You're also the top Republican on the Senate Banking Committee. You and your Republican colleagues um, boycotted yesterday's vote uh, on uh, Biden's nominees for the Federal Reserve. At, at issue specifically is nominee Sarah Raskin to be the Fed's top banking regulator. You say she won't answer questions about her time at a Colorado financial firm. Uh, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren says the real issue is Raskin wants to target climate change and its threat to the financial system. Take a listen. She has had the um, courage to talk about it and to say that banks need to be accounting for climate crisis in terms of the value of their assets, the lending they do, and so on. And the industry, the big corporations think, whoa, she could be tough, she could be a problem, so let's focus in and try to shut this down. What's your response to Senator Warren, sir? Uh, where to begin? Um, so what we did yesterday happens to be the same thing that Chairman Brown uh, urged his Democratic colleagues to do in the Senate Finance Committee just a couple of years ago. Um, we object only to having a vote on Ms. Raskin. I have told Chairman Brown that at any time yesterday or today or any time, we can vote on the other five uh, nominees, some of whom I support, some of whom I don't. But here's what's different about uh, Ms. Raskin. Uh, there is a very um, peculiar set of circumstances surrounding a company that she was affiliated with and made a lot of money from. And we can't get answers as to what happened. And, and this, it's not that complicated. Here's, here's what happened. It's, it's called Reserve Trust. It's a Colorado-based fintech that applied for a master account at the Fed, which is a very, very valuable thing. No fintech in America has gotten that. 
They were turned down. Then Ms. Raskin called the Kansas City Fed, had a conversation with them, and subsequently the Fed did a 180-degree reversal and approved the transaction for Reserve Trust. So today, they are the only fintech that I know of that actually has one of these accounts with the Fed. That's enormously valuable. We can't get any, Ms. Raskin won't even acknowledge, won't admit that she remembers making the call, but the president of the Kansas City Fed knows. And, and I just want to know that this happened in an appropriate fashion. And every fintech in America that would like to get a master account deserves to know, how did they, how did they manage to do this? And by the way, the very, very superficial explanation given by the Kansas City Fed was directly contradicted by the, uh, the folks at the, uh, the banking regulators in Colorado uh, who, whom she invoked. So th there's just a, there's a lot going on here that nobody wants to tell us what really happened and the American people have a right to know. Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, thank you so much for your time, sir. Good to see you as always. Thanks for having me, Jake. The January 6th committee could soon get a closer look at just what was happening inside Trump's White House while rioters attacked the Capitol. That's next. Turning to our politics lead right now, one of the great unknowns of the deadly January 6th insurrection is what then-President Trump was up to at the White House and with whom was he meeting? Now, White House visitor logs from that day could lead the January 6th House Committee to an answer. The head of the National Archives says the records will be in the hands of the committee in just 15 days. CNN's Paula Reed joins us now. Paul, how, mu how much detail is usually in these White House logs? Well, the logs contain information from people who have made appointments to visit the White House. So if you don't have a pass, a permanent pass to be wandering around that complex, you have to submit your personal details. You also have to submit information about who are you meeting with, what day, what time, and the location down to the specific room. And today, the Biden White House counsel notes that in terms of this kind of information, the Biden administration releases these details, with few exceptions, on a monthly basis, which is part of why they believe these have to be shared with the committee. But there are some limits on exactly what this will reveal. For example, if you are scheduled, if you have an appointment to meet with the chief of staff, you go into his or her office, and then you wander down the hall and end up in the Oval Office talking with the president. Well, that's not going to be reflected in the logs, because that's not the detail that you submitted up front. There's also limits on how much information we get about who's in the residence. Both the Obama and Biden administrations have really limited information that they've released about any personal guests who went to the residence. So this will give the committee some additional details, but it's not going to give them the full picture of everyone who was in and out of the White House that day. All right. That's, that's uh, something everybody wants to know. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Mask mandates are being ripped away across the country, so why is the CDC still waiting to issue updated guidance? That's next. In our health lead today, the CDC guidance on masks is coming soon, we're told. That's according to the agency director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, today citing the dramatic drop in new COVID cases and hospitalizations. But... As CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now, local authorities have not been waiting around for the CDC to issue new guidance. We are all cautiously optimistic about the trajectory we are on. Even with massive declines in the COVID caseload, there's no new guidance yet from the federal government for when and how to move away from masks. We want to give people a break from things like mask wearing when these metrics are better and then have the ability to reach for them again should things worsen. And we'll soon put guidance in place. 
For now, the CDC says hospital capacity remains a top priority amid considerations for when to roll back restrictions. According to the agency, virus transmission is still considered substantial or high in 97% of counties nationwide. Even so, nearly every state is pushing ahead in the absence of new guidance. There are just three states left that have yet to announce an end to mask mandates. Local authorities are taking the lead, but after two years of deep divides over how to handle the pandemic, there are some irreparable rifts. Kaiser Health News reports Douglas County, Colorado and the city of West Covina in Southern California are splitting from their public health agencies to form their own local departments. With Omicron's peak now behind us, Disney, Universal Studios Orlando, and Coachella all announcing they're dropping mask requirements. And the White House says the majority of Americans who ordered free test kits during the surge have finally received them. 85% of the initial orders are now out the door. And in the next several days, we will complete the shipping. Two years in, the government has made available 230 million free high-quality masks. But with much of the country now locked in fierce debates over masks in schools, those masks for kids aren't here yet. The government will be making high-quality masks available for kids. That process is underway. And Jake, parents in Virginia will now be able to opt out of school mask mandates for their children. Governor Glenn Youngkin signing that bill saying Virginia is restoring power back to the parents. Jake? All right, Alexander Field, thanks so much. Here to discuss Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He's a professor of medicine and surgery at George Washington University, as well as a CNN uh, medical analyst. Um, Dr. Reiner, uh, just across the river in Virginia, uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin has signed this legislation uh, allowing parents to have the decision whether or not their kids are masked. What do you think? Is that the right move? No. Uh, First of all, the majority of kids in a lot of places remain unvaccinated, and the unvaccinated in our population now are still really vulnerable to a virus that's still around in great numbers. Let's think about where we are right now. The good news is that things have gotten a lot better. Uh, Case rates are plummeting around the United States, but we're still averaging around 140,000 cases per day, down from a peak of almost a million. That's a gigantic drop. But if you look at where we were at the peak of Delta in September, we were at exactly where we are now. We were at 140,000 cases per day. So in September, would we have basically you know, lobbied all around the country to drop mask mandates? We would have said, no, I mean, there's still a lot of virus here. Things are so much better than they were, but we still have a lot. And there are so many people who remain vulnerable. I think it's, it's too soon. Some places, you know, we will start to approach a time. D.C. is getting better. Uh, it's, get, it's coming close to where we were at our lowest levels. Places like New York are dropping rapidly. But there's still a lot of virus around in a lot of places. And I think it's really premature. The CDC says its new masking guidance is coming soon. What, what should the guidance be right now when it comes to masking? Well, I think we're going to have to do it on a community-by-community basis that takes into account not just the level of virus in the community, but the amount of people in hospitals in the United States, and there's still uh, you know, 85,000 people hospitalized. Uh, again, uh, at, uh, we're about uh, almost twice where we were when Omicron began. Also, we need to take into account what is the level of protection in the community? You know, a place like D.C. right now, which is about to drop uh, mask mandates for you know, parts of our community, you know, 79% of the population is fully vaccinated, but there are parts of the United States where that's, you know, not the case. I mean, Wyoming, for instance, you know, 54% of the people in Wyoming are fully vaccinated. 
So there are a lot of variables to, to keep track of when we're trying to, to understand when it's safe to, uh, to, to drop masking. Mm. And also when we drop masking, you know, we're telling the most vulnerable in our population sort of that you're on your own. And I'm uncomfortable with, with that uh, message. You know, when Yunkin drops mask mandates or allows parents to opt out of mask mandates in Virginia, what he's telling uh, the parent of a child with either severe asthma or brittle diabetes or a kid who's l- recovering from leukemia, that they're on their own. One of the uh, issues I hear a lot from uh, viewers is that the CDC doesn't seem to distinguish, although they acknowledge on their website that yeah. there is a difference, but they don't seem to distinguish the real difference between a cloth mask that your Aunt Sadie made you uh, with you know Eagles logos on it or whatever and an N95 mask, that there really is a big difference. The CDC acknowledges this on their website, but when it comes to mask requirements or mask mandates, uh, they don't. And I think a lot of people get confused by that because they think if the cloth mask doesn't really do that much, why are they mandating it? Well, I think, I think CDC leadership believes that any mask is better than no mask. But what, what I'm here to say is that if you want to wear a mask now, you should wear either an N95 a KN95 or a KF94, uh, mostly from, from Korea. Those three mask types are extraordinarily protective against uh, uh, acquiring uh, COVID. A cloth mask, particularly a loose cloth mask or a bandana, you know, worn loosely around the face, is fashion. Every person should be. And, and, and look, it made sense when N95 masks were difficult to come by or they were expensive. But that's not the case now. And CDC should firmly state that if you're going to wear a mask, KN95, N95, or KF94. Dr. Jonathan Reiner, good to see you again. Thank you so much. An eagle-eyed police officer finds a little girl who's been missing for two years when he sees something strange under a staircase. What caught his eye? That's next. We're back with our national lead. Moments ago, a court appearance for two men and a woman arrested after a missing girl was found alive two years after she went missing. Saugerties New York police discovered Paisley Schultes, who is now six years old, hidden under a wooden staircase last night with her biological mother, who does not have custody. CNN's Shimon Prokopes joins us now. Shimon, how exactly did police know where to find Paisley after these two years? Well, it was just good police work. The investigators never giving up. And the parents uh, just leaving court moments ago, they have been released and as their case goes through uh, the procedures. And so they're out now, the judge releasing them and adjourning the case uh, to next month. So there's a lot going on here that obviously we also don't know. Like, why did the parents ultimately lose custody of this six-year-old, then four-year-old who was kidnapped. Now, what really went on here was just the police. The police in Saugerties never giving up, believing for whatever reason that this child was in this home, continued to investigate. They went to the home several times. The biological parents wouldn't really allow them inside to do a search. Finally, working on a tip Monday night, the police were able to get inside. And it was a detective, a detective who was walking on the stairs of this home up and down several times after about an hour and a half of searching, noticed something strange. And then he looked through a crack in the staircase and he saw that blanket. And then when he looked further, he saw little feet. And then that's when they broke the stairs apart and they found the six-year-old with her mother. Interestingly enough, the police said that they walked up and down the stairs. They heard nothing 
coming from underneath there until they obviously broke it apart and they took her out of there and they took her mother into custody and then they took her to a McDonald's. She wanted McDonald's and so they took her to McDonald's and gave her a happy meal. We're told that she's doing okay. She's been reunited with the guardians, the people who have custody of her and her older sister, Jake. All right, Sharon Prokopis, thank you so much. Crazy story. In the newest episode of Plane Passengers Gone Wild, there's a new push to put badly behaved flyers on a no-fly list. It's already getting pushback in the Congress. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, battling drug overdose deaths by letting users use. We're taking a closer look into a controversial program aimed at lowering overdoses in our series, United States of Addiction. Plus, do you remember your driver's license number from decades ago? Well, neither do I, but questions like that are leading to massive voter confusion and rejected ballots and applications, the result of a new Republican-led election reform law in one of the biggest states in the country and leading this hour, what's real and what's not on the Ukraine-Russian border. The Kremlin claiming some forces are pulling back while Ukraine and the West say the exact opposite is happening. Let's get straight to CNN's Matthew Chance in Kyiv. Uh, Matthew, President Biden said there are more than 150,000 Russian troops around Ukraine right now, but Ukrainian officials believe that is not enough for a full-scale invasion? Yeah, that, that's right. It's according to uh, the most recent uh, Ukrainian military uh, intelligence analysis that we got given to us earlier on today, exclusively uh, here at CNN, uh, concurring actually with President Biden's assessment of how many Russian troops there are close to the Ukrainian border. He said 150,000. The Ukrainian said more than 148,000. So that's one area of agreement. But the Ukrainian intelligence assessment did deviate uh, from, the, uh, from, from the US side by saying, look, we don't think and I'm paraphrasing it here, we don't think that that level of forces is sufficient uh, to be able to commit to a big, large-scale sort of armed invasion of Ukraine. doesn't mean they can't do a smaller one, of course, and doesn't mean they wouldn't try it with a with a force that the Ukrainians assess not to be big enough. But nevertheless, you know, that was what the assessment said. They don't think uh, that there are enough Russian forces there at the moment uh, to stage a full-scale invasion, which is what the United States, of course, has been uh, warning about. Now, what the Ukrainians are saying is what they're more concerned about is internal destabilisation uh, inside of Ukraine. Uh, the Russians using economic levers, um, energy as a weapon, and, of course, cyber attacks to destabilise Ukraine as a way of getting their point across. Jake. And Matt, CNN has obtained new satellite images that shows road construction and a, and a new bridge in Belarus right near the Ukrainian border. What are sources saying about this new construction? Yeah, this is this is reporting coming to CNN um, saying that there have been satellite images and we've seen these images, of course, uh, of what appears to be a, a temporary or a pontoon bridge that sprung up in the past couple of weeks over the Pripyat River, uh, which is a big, long river, about 400 miles or so long, that runs largely through uh, Belarus, um, just a short distance from the, the, the Ukrainian border. And that bridge has sprung up in an area where there are Russian and Belarusian uh, tanks and, and other armour and forces that have been concentrated, raising the possibility that it could be, if you're looking for you know, evidence that you know, um, you know, the Russians are poised to come into Ukraine, something, of course, they deny their they're planning, then, then that's a bridge they could use. I think there are other bridges across the, the Pripyat River as well. But I think what it does is this, this very interesting thing. It's like with all of these exercises and all these maneuvers we've seen from Russia, 
It, it leaves us in no doubt about the capability of Russian forces. They can build bridges. They can assemble their forces uh, in the region uh, close to Ukraine's border. But it doesn't tell us very much, unfortunately, about what Vladimir Putin intends to do at the 59th minute and the 11th hour. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. East of Kiev and about 25 miles from the border with Russia, CNN's Sam Kiley has been speaking to Ukrainians in Kharkiv about how they feel about a possible Russian invasion on a day that... The Ukrainian president has marked a national day of unity. The chorus of Kharkiv Opera House singing in defiance of this. Russia massing what the US says are 150,000 troops on three sides of Ukraine's border. In Kharkiv, 25 miles from the frontier, a day of national unity is quickly marked amid dire warnings from Washington. An invasion remains distinctly possible. Here, though, a message of calm. Do you expect an invasion? No, we don't expect it, he says. I think we should be ready for anything. But I'm also sure everything is going to be fine. If the Russians did attack, they'd have a short run to Kharkiv. We're driving north towards the border with Russia, which is now about 15 or 20 minutes away. About half an hour beyond that is the city of Belograd. Now, around Belograd, according to Russian reports, there is the First Guard's tank army. On paper, they're capable of mustering 50,000 or so infantry, 600 to 800 tanks. They have Iskander surface-to-surface missiles, but there isn't a single sign on this road, north of Kharkiv, a city of 1.5 million people, of any kind of Ukrainian military activity. Just trucks waiting for a routine crossing into Russia. And business as usual at the border crossing here. Russia's on the other side of that fence. The locals here relaxed. Ludmila says, how is it that we're forced to quarrel with our brothers? I just can't comprehend it. On the contrary, we should not have borders at all. There is no will to fight with Russia, and we don't see the will of the Russians to fight with us. There are no armed forces, not even a hint, says Alexander. In case Russia does send tanks into this vast landscape, Ukrainians insist that they recall the words of their national anthem. Our enemies will die as the dew does in the sunshine, and we brothers will live happily in our land. Now, Jake, uh, the NATO Secretary General speaking at a major meeting of foreign ministers of NATO uh, said today that this kind of thing, the massing of uh, Russian troops, the exercise of military muscle in order to achieve political ends, the causing of stability of the sort mentioned in uh, Matthew's exclusive uh, intelligence report there is now part of the new normal and for that reason uh, looking into the future he's suggesting that whatever else comes out of this the the uh, NATO will be reinforcing its eastern flank Jake. All right Sam Kiley in Kharkiv Ukraine thank you so much joining us now live to discuss Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Mr. Chairman good to see you the Ukrainian government believes uh, that the current Russian troop level is not enough for a full-scale invasion. Um, do you agree? Well, I respect the analysis of uh, our intelligence and military, and, and they believe it is 
uh, sufficient for a full-scale invasion. Now, you know, uh, we agree that there's about 150,000 troops, uh, Russian troops. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think that that can cause, surrounded by three sides of the Ukraine being, uh, I think that can cause an, an enormous consequence to Ukraine if uh, Putin decides to invade. Uh, maybe they think, uh, the, you know, the spirit of Ukrainians uh, would be a bigger match for Russians uh, in terms of a decision to invade, but uh, that seems to be more than enough for them to have a, a full-scale invasion. U.S. officials have been saying that military action by U- Russia in Ukraine could happen as soon as this week. It's now Wednesday. Do you think Ukraine is, is possibly at less risk today than it was a week ago? No, I don't. Uh, I don't. Why? You don't have cyber attacks against uh, Ukrainian central banks and the Department of Defense uh, if you're intending to find a pathway to diplomacy. You don't amass more troops if your purpose is a pathway to diplomacy. Uh, You don't talk about a genocide in the Donbass, as Putin has been talking about, which doesn't exist, totally false, but as possibly a pretextual reason uh, to invade Ukraine. Uh, Those are all, among many other actions, uh, that just speak to uh, not a pathway to diplomacy, but a pathway to conflict. The government of Ukraine uh, has not yet said that they think for sure the Russians were responsible for the cyber attacks on the Ministry of Defense and those two prominent banks. Do you have information that says the Russians were, in fact, responsible? Well, I can just say that uh, all the indications lead to it being the Russians. And, uh, you know, it, it just is common sense at this point that that is part of the modus operandi uh, of Russia. Uh, it finds destabilizing ways before it might very well create an attack. And, and we're going to know, Jake, because these maneuvers that have been taking place that supposedly were maneuvers that they do annually, including with Belarus, are supposed to end on Sunday. So if it ends on Sunday, uh, then we would expect uh, significant withdrawals of Russian troops from the area because the, the maneuvers uh, uh, are over. Uh, but if they don't, then this is just a constant challenge to Ukraine, an asphyxiation of the country uh, as it tries uh, to move forward uh, you know, to a better day. You've called Russian claims that they're open to more diplomatic talks, a dog and pony show. Um, but beyond diplomacy, what other options does the West have? Well, what I specifically claimed was a dog and pony show was that uh, uh, session he had with uh, the foreign minister, Lavrov, uh, in public. They never have discussions like that in public. Uh, it was all, a, that was a dog and pony show. Look, I hope that the intense diplomacy that is being waged by the United States and our allies, the very clear message that President Biden put out there that NATO and the United States are not a threat to Russia and that there is a diplomatic pathway forward and the threats of, uh, you know, uh, crushing uh, sanctions on the Russian economy and people, as well as the lethal ability of the Ukrainian army today, much different than in, uh, in 2014, is ultimately making Putin recalculate and finding a diplomatic pathway. But everything he does belies his words. We need to see verifiable actions that move us in a different direction towards a diplomatic offering. You and your Republican counterpart on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee were working on a bipartisan sanctions bill against Russia. It now appears that that bill is 
no longer operative after weeks of negotiations. Now, you voicing you have been voicing your disappointment with Senate Republicans for introducing their own sanctions package. Um, it appears the biggest difference is that the Republicans want sanctions now. Democrats want to wait until when or if Russia invades. Is that how you see it? No. Look, we, we worked in good faith, I believe, for several weeks. Um, you know, when Senator McConnell, the Republican leader last week, said, uh, well, I don't really think we need a sanctions package because the president has all the authorities he needs. It puts sort of like, you know, some cold water on, on the effort. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, I offered uh, some more uh, uh, opportunities to move in Republicans' directions, in addition to everything I had already accepted, to a bill that I call the mother of all sanctions in the first place. And yet it's still, first of all, they didn't respond to that. Then they dropped their own bill. So uh, I regret that we haven't achieved it. I'm glad that both the Democratic and Republican leaders, along with the 10 uh, National Security Committee's chair and ranking members, put out a strong bipartisan statement yesterday. Senator Shaheen and Senator uh, Portman are working on one that I support and will co-sponsor for the, for the Senate as a whole to express themselves in support of Ukraine. And the one thing that should be clear, Jake, is that we're all agreement on, on, on two major things. Number one, we support Ukraine unequivocally. And, and, and support means both lethal and non-lethal. And number two, uh, we all believe that there must be swift and punishing sanctions against Putin uh, if he invades Ukraine. On that, there is consensus. Maybe the details of how you do that is another question. In the last hour, I spoke with your colleague, Republican Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. He, he says his bill, uh, their sanctions bill, comes down harder in Russia. Take a listen. The big difference between our two approaches is in our bill, we impose secondary sanctions on Russian banks. And what that does, that has the effect of really shutting down the Russian economy. Probably crashes the ruble, makes it very difficult for them to sell even oil and gas anywhere in the world. Could you get on board with that if Russia were to invade? Well, my legislation uh, had removal from SWIFT, which was the sanctions that brought Iran to the negotiating table, and I think is far more powerful than secondary sanctions. And secondly, what SWIFT doesn't do, removing Russia from the SWIFT system, is break the alliance with Europe. Secondary sanctions on a series of European companies and financial institutions breaks the alliance. And we need an alliance to have multilateral sanctions on Russia and Putin if he makes the mistake of invading. Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Menendez in New Jersey, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Just across the Ukrainian border, American forces are getting ready. CNN is there as more U.S. troops land in Poland. And then should passengers who assault flight attendants or refuse to wear masks on board, should they be put on a no-fly list? That debate is ahead. Staying with the worldly, the U.S. has opened what it calls a welcome center near Poland's border with Ukraine to help Americans crossing that border get away from a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as those American citizens arrive in Poland, so are U.S. forces, with more large military planes landing today, packed with service members, heavy equipment, and trucks. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in Poland as the U.S. military makes its presence known. They don't really want you to see this, but it's hard to hide. These are U.S. troops landing near the Polish border with Ukraine. High-end Blackhawks, C-17 cargo planes, dozens in the past days. Media haven't been given official access, but they're pretty hard to miss. Trucks, pallets, 
signs these 82nd Airborne from Fort Bragg are not here, an hour's drive from Ukraine, just overnight. They even came this day with a Cessna light aircraft, which seems to be innocently carrying top brass who get onto a nearby helicopter. Moscow may point to these scenes as NATO massing troops on Ukraine's border, but these are here with the approval of Poland, a NATO member. In a standoff that's all about messaging, these American troops are about ensuring US allies feel their presence. The unit we saw decamped to a nearby conference centre. They're here just in case to help stranded Americans in Ukraine if the need arises. These sort of movements in NATO war games and drills have been practised for years. They don't really want us to see this, the larger base where they are. Are the Americans over here? This is their main base, yes? Or? Uh, we can't uh, talk about it. I understand. So. Can we talk to somebody about this? Or? Um, no. They walk right by us. Come on, talk. Don't, be, don't be afraid. It's all right. And the size of the operation, these are a lot of tents over a wide area, is both what you might expect to support that many soldiers, but also something that is almost definitely not for show and betrays a lot of readiness, even if you hope they all stay bored and cold under canvas in the weeks ahead. The border with Ukraine, an hour away, is normally busy. But Sasha is on his way back in as his visa has run out. Ukraine is my country. I have to stay, he says. Yes, in the army, if needs be, but no running away. At another crossing, Ukrainians returning are pretty blunt. He won't get as far as Kiev. We won't let him, one says. We'll raise a resistance, fight him in the woods. It'll be like Stalin. His own people will kill him. Bravado running hot, far, far away from a front line that is still mostly cold. Now, Jake, it's important to point out the Polish side of the Polish-Ukrainian border behind me here is quiet. No signs uh, of anyone fleeing the conflict that hasn't started yet. In fact, we've seen mostly Ukrainians headed back. The vehicle checkpoint over there, very busy even at night here. But the scenes we saw earlier today, so many US troops coming here into Poland, so close to a country that some signs suggest could be in severe danger in the weeks ahead, is remarkable to see. NATO's drilled this. They practice these sort of movements uh, around around Europe's east for years, but it's remarkable to see this happening, what seems like, because of a real, actual, possible imminent threat. Jake? All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Poland for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The condition of an American detained in Russia may be deteriorating quickly. Today, the spokesman for the U.S. Embassy in Moscow tweeted, quote, in December, Trevor Reed had prolonged exposure to another prisoner with active tuberculosis. Trevor now reports he's coughing up blood and has not received medical care for it. Russia, give Trevor proper medical treatment. Better yet, release him, unquote. A Reed family spokesman says the 30-year-old has complained of chest pain, and Russian authorities have refused medical care. Reed, of course, is a former U.S. Marine who was arrested in Moscow in 2019. He was sentenced to nine years in prison after a Russian judge said that he endangered the life and health of the arresting officers. Reed has said he was drunk and does not remember the incident. He's one of Two former Marines detained in Russia right now. Paul Whelan is also behind bars in a separate prison. Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, told me Sunday the U.S. is actively trying to bring both men home, and the Russians have been willing to engage in those discussions. 
Three tries. That's how many attempts it took for one woman to vote in Texas after the state passed a new restrictive voting law, and she is hardly alone. Stay with us. In our politics lead right now, early voting is underway in Texas for their March 1st primary election. It's the first test for the state's new restrictive voting law, and we're seeing early signs that the Lone Star state is not succeeding. In addition to already restrictive mail-in ballot requirements, the new law requires voters to remember information potentially from decades ago. As CNN's Diane Gallagher reports, that has resulted in a slew of rejected ballots, including that of a World War II veteran. I'm angry. I am, I'm righteously angry. After decades of helping others make a plan to vote, a controversial new election law landed 74-year-old Pam Gaskin in unfamiliar territory. Her mail ballot application was denied not once, but twice. I am Pam Gaskin, you know, super voter. (laughs) How could this happen? First, Fort Bend County had yet to update applications under the new law, which now requires voters to add their Texas driver's license or partial Social Security number to the application, which is what Gaskin did in her second attempt. But there's a catch. The law says it has to be the number that was on your your application when you registered to vote. When did you register to vote? 46 years ago in this county. Because she wrote her valid license number but had registered with her social, the application was rejected. People are not going to vote. 95-year-old World War II veteran Kenneth Thompson's ballot application was also denied twice. In 1940s Harris County, he didn't use either number to register, so no match. In Texas, only a person who is over 65, disabled, or out of the county can vote by mail. But days before the application deadline, there are thousands of rejections across the entire state, all political parties, and this isn't the only problem. That's 5,000 cuts. A tight timeline to implement changes means less training and voter education, says Harris County Election Administrator Isabel Longoria. 14% of mail ballot applications there have been rejected over ID issues so far. We're still getting emails on all these tweaks in the laws. What we're leading to now is a higher than usual, almost double, uh, rejection of mail ballot applications. But now the actual ballots are also being flagged and returned across the state, nearly 40 percent so far in Harris County, overwhelmingly due to the new ID requirements, which voters need to write again in a space under the flap on the external ballot return envelope. There's so much confusion, she's doubled staffing at phone banks. We got 8,000 calls in January alone 5,000 of which were about mail ballot voting. Texas is one of 19 states that passed restrictive voting legislation in 2021. Now let's make this final. But before Governor Greg Abbott signed Senate Bill 1 into law late last year, activists warned lawmakers about potential snares like ID match and complicated envelopes. The challenges that we're seeing now are a feature of SB1 of the voting law, not a bug. The Secretary of State's office telling CNN in a statement, our office has been working as quickly and diligently as possible within a compressed time frame to provide guidance to both elected officials and voters on changes to the voting process in Texas. For Gaskin, the long journey is almost complete. An online ballot tracker, now required under the new law, says hers has been received. 28 days. Three attempts, success. What worries me is that everybody is not as tenacious as I am. They're not going to stick with it. 
Now, there is a lot of attention on the mail ballot part of this, but early in-person voting started this week in Texas, Jake, and activists are watching another component of that new law. That's the further empowerment and access for those partisan poll watchers. It's something else that they testify leading up to the law being passed, saying that they were concerned about intimidation, especially in this exceptionally charged climate that we've been living in the past two years. All right, Diane Gallagher in Houston, Texas for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in our panel, CNN political commentators S.E. Cup and Bakari Sellers. S.E., you just heard Diane's report. Three attempts to send in a ballot, 28 days. I would say the law doesn't appear to be working, but maybe it is working exactly as they intended. Yeah, this is by design. This is not complicated. This is what the point was uh, for Republicans who wanted to gum up the system and make voting harder. When you want to make voting harder, it's because you don't want people to vote. You don't want people to vote because you don't want them to vote for the other guy. Um, You know, I don't want to sound dramatic, but fascism has the same goal. Fascism bans opposition parties to achieve the same kind of outcome. Obviously, we're not a fascist uh, government, but this is kind of a, a workaround to make it impossible for a lot of people to vote. And that's frankly what happens when you're out of ideas, um, when when, you know, limiting democracy and access to voting is all you're bringing to the table as the Republican Party. Um, you're just out of ideas. Bakari, you're in South Carolina where you must have seen a lot of that people trying to make it tougher to vote. I mean, throughout the South, and I don't think we have to go to fascism, although Essie is right about what it is. I mean, you can just go, go to age old racism. And this hasn't been that long ago where we had uh, laws that were passed which uh, prevented people of color, the elderly, the impoverished from having access to the ballot box. We're talking about uh, the 40s, 50s and the early part of the 60s. And that's why you had things such as the Voting Rights Act and preclearance, things that John Roberts began to gut. And then the Republican Party, this new age Republican Party, just set a flame to the remaining part of the Voting Rights Act. But look, this is not a, a bug. This is a feature. Uh, this is what uh, the Republican Party, particularly Southern legislatures, want to do. It is racist on its face. Uh, it is anti-democratic and it's un-American. And we have to call it out as such. And the frustrating part for me, Jake, sitting before you, is that these are the same battles my father fought. And here I am again, 30 years younger than my dad, still fighting those battles. <laughs> And we have individuals, you couple that with individuals like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who, who simply don't give a damn, then you find yourself in a position right now where a lot of black voters are going to suffer from exhaustion and throw their hands up and say, I'm tired of jumping over these, these hurdles. S.E., let's turn to the political fight surrounding uh, schools. Um, CNN uh, projects that three San Francisco school board members have been pushed out by <laughs> voters on Tuesday after that nasty recall fight that pitted uh, Democrats against Democrats. Uh, parents said the board was too focused on renaming schools instead of reopening schools. Um, SE, do you think this should serve as a wake-up call uh, to Democrats uh, about uh, the most important issue facing so many parents, and that is, can their kids get an education? <clears throat> yeah, and excuse me. I, <clears throat> I have a tickle. Um, COVID... COVID really did um, break on party lines in a lot of ways, especially on masks and and vaccines. But in one way, it really was a bridge between the parties, and that's where schools were concerned. And I think a lot of parents woke up because of COVID. 
And when it came to whether, you know, Virginia or San Francisco, I mean, these weren't Trump voters and Fox News viewers coming for suddenly school boards and uh, teachers unions and Democrats. I mean, this was Northern Virginia deciding that Terry McAuliffe didn't get it. And this was radical San Francisco, where there are more dogs than kids, frankly, um, you know, telling telling progressives in San Francisco, we don't care about the murals and the building names. We want our kids back in school safely and getting a good education. So I think parents have really woken up. And I think that needs to wake Democrats up. I think Democrats long felt as if they were the party of parents. And I think took a lot of um, voters for granted on those lines. And I think I think parents are taking back sort of the autonomy and the control that I think they surrendered for a very long time to politics. Bakari, your response? No, Essie's right. And 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 Jake, if you recall on State of the Union on Sunday, uh, Hillary Rosen used the term parental exhaustion. And the fact and that's exactly what it is. And Democrats haven't tapped into that angst, that frustration. It seems as if we don't understand or don't get that parental exhaustion that's come along with COVID. And so whether or not you're in Northern Virginia, it's a lesson that Terry McAuliffe had to learn, or you're in San Francisco, this is actually something that Republicans have gotten right. They've actually, I don't want to say listen to parents, but they've actually gotten out of the way of parents and they've mobilized and, and parents are mobilized more than they have been in the past. And so, yes, Democrats have to stop talking as much on COVID and begin to listen. I understand and believe in following the science. Don't get me wrong. I understand the necessity of, of, of vaccines and mandates, but I also know that there's a human component and we have to begin to listen to parents as well. Something that um, elected officials are going to have to begin to ascribe to or else they're going to find themselves out of a job. Bakari Sellers and SE Cup, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. In China, people who tell the truth about the COVID pandemic tend to never be heard from again. We're going to go behind China's wall. That's next. Now our Behind China's Wall series in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government obviously hoping to use the games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms and its crimes against humanity and its genocide. Today we're going to take a look at how the Chinese Communist Party brutally cracks down on its own people who try to report the truth, especially when it comes to the COVID outbreak. For example, journalist Zhang Zhan has been in prison since May 2020 for reporting on the initial COVID outbreak in Wuhan, China. The government sentenced her to four years in prison for, quote, picking quarrels and provoking trouble, unquote. CNN's David Culver joins us now live from Beijing. And David, Zhang Zhen's story really illustrates the Chinese government's suppression of Chinese journalists and just facts. It does, Jake. And, you know, this is often overlooked, that among the first reporting the truth about what was then this mystery illness were Chinese journalists before they got shut down and punished and some disappeared. Zhang Zhan, it was in Wuhan early on. She was trying to sound the alarm based on what she was seeing. And as you point out, in May 2020, authorities charged her with picking quarrels and provoking trouble. That is a charge often used to silence government critics here. But Zhang remained defiant, even in prison. She went on a hunger strike for months, nearly dying. That terrified officials, so they actually ended up forcing a feeding tube into her to keep her alive. Now, my team's been in touch with Zhang's lawyer. Her mom was able to briefly video chat with her in late January and says she appears to be in better health. She's eating again, slowly gaining some strength. She's also now starting to walk by herself again. But that tells you 
just how close to death she came. Zhang Zhen is by no means an isolated case. The Chinese government has targeted a number of citizen journalists who tried to document and uncover the reality of the pandemic. We can show you some of them here. Some were detained, some punished, some simply disappeared. And we're not only talking about journalists. Healthcare workers also tried to sound the alarm. Healthcare workers like Dr. Li Wenliang. He was among one of the first to warn people about the virus. He got in trouble with police, and Jake, he eventually died from the virus. And, and David, it's not only cracking down on whistleblowers, right? There's a coordinated government propaganda campaign about COVID underway. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's coordinated. It's also uh, relentless. And it's this propaganda push that is still ongoing. On top of silencing the whistleblowers, the Chinese government also creating this surge of conspiracy theories. The apparent goal is to deflect blame on the virus origins and sow doubt. Baselessly alleging at times that the virus is an imported threat that started elsewhere, like the U.S. Now, this is all part of this effort to reclaim the narrative of the pandemic, especially as China prepared to host these, the Winter Games, something that are incredibly important to them. And the COVID containment measures that uh, we've seen being put in place, they further allowed the central government here to keep physical control of things, too. We've covered the endless lockdowns, the arbitrary quarantine, the strict contact tracing. Effective in stopping the spread of the virus, sure, but the central government is using state media here to press the continued need for these strict measures. And we can show you a recent snapshot of Chinese state media headlines. They continue, Jake, to point this bleak and horrifying picture of COVID situations overseas in places like the U.S. All of that allows them to justify their actions right here at home, Jake. David Culver with the latest installment of Behind China's Wall. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Do you know someone who has refused to wear a mask on a plane or started throwing punches or started attacking flight attendants? Well, if so, the Justice Department might want to hear from you. Stay with us. In our national lead today, 80 cases of violent, unruly passengers on commercial airplanes are now in the hands of the U.S. Justice Department for possible criminal prosecution. That's according to the FAA. Let's get right to CNN Aviation correspondent Pete Montine. Pete, uh, this is more than double since November. That's right, Jake. And the FAA says these are the most extreme cases that it's now referring to the Justice Department for these passengers to face possible criminal prosecution. We're talking about assaults on fellow passengers, on members of the flight crew. The FAA says in some instances, these involve cases of sexual assault. Those 43 new cases now bring that total to 80 cases referred to the Justice Department since the FAA enacted a zero tolerance policy against unruly passengers early last year. But consider that that represents really only about 1% of the 6,480 reports by flight crews to the FAA about unruly passengers. The FAA underscores that it is a pretty high bar to clear in order to pass one of these cases onto the Justice Department. And simply not every report clears that big threshold. The FAA does note that it can only assess civil fines against unruly passengers. It does not have the power to bring criminal charges. And that's why this latest announcement is really so key, Jake. So let's talk about that, because the Justice Department's considering whether unruly passengers should be put on a no-fly list. There is a group of Republican senators who are voicing opposition uh, to this no-fly list. Well, the issue here, Jake, is that one passenger could get banned from flying on one airline and then conceivably fly on a different airline completely unnoticed that they're involved in an unruly passenger incident. So these eight 
Republican senators have now written the Attorney General Merrick Garland to say that a federal no-fly list, adding unruly passengers to that, would essentially equate them to terrorists, especially when so many of these cases involve the federal transportation mask mandate. That's still in place until March 18th. Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants says this letter is simply political brinksmanship. The Department of Justice has not moved on this. It says it's still consulting with relevant agencies, Jake. Pete Montine, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Turning now to our health lead, new CDC data released today finds that the number of lethal drug overdoses in the United States has more than doubled in the past six years, from 52,000 overdose deaths in 2015 to nearly 105,000 last year. And that's the focus of our series, United States of Addiction, where we look at the toll of the opioid epidemic on the American people. Today, CNN's Jason Carroll takes a look at New York City's controversial safe injection sites. For Monica Diaz, every day is a struggle. She's homeless, and much of what she owns she carries with her. But she says it is the weight of her addiction that at times is too much to bear. Have you overdosed in the past? Uh, in the past, not here, but okay. in the past I have. This is the place Diaz credits with helping her cope. It's a supervised drug consumption site, the first of two to open in the country. How often do you come? Um, they're open five days a week. I'm here every day. And the days that they're not open, what do you do? Um, improvise. <laughs> Both locations are in New York City. This one is in Harlem, the other in Washington Heights. Here, users take illegal drugs with clean supplies without risk of arrest. To be clear, they are not given illegal drugs here. It's where they use drugs already in their possession. When somebody first comes through the door, we're going to ask them what they're using and how they're using it. In the East Harlem location, it's all done under the supervision of these medical professionals. This is all of our injection and sniffing equipment, as well as our smoking equipment up here, so people can take anything that they need. Are you guys okay? We're great. In Washington Heights, the same protective protocols are in place, but here, many of the trained staff are also recovering addicts, like Clara Cardell. I see you need a water. Sam Rivera is the executive director of the program. He says they have averted more than 130 overdoses since the sites opened in November. So far, Rivera says no one has died under the staff's watch. This wouldn't be happening if you don't show up the way you guys show up, man. The goal is we want to keep people alive. And if we want people to recover and get a better life, if they're dead, they can't. You okay, sweetie? We're checking on people constantly. If we start to see eyelid drooping or any kind of slouching, we're going right over and we're going to agitate them with a sternum grind. If we're seeing more serious overdoses or the overdoses are starting to progress, we're going to be going over to the crash cart. Our crash cart has um, oral airways, ambu bags, two different kinds of Narcan. When you look at a facility like this, mm-hmm. your immediate thought is, what are you doing to get these people off drugs? We're giving them every opportunity possible to stop. Once someone says they're interested, we get them picked up right into detox. Around this corner, you'll find the, the supervised injection site. Joshua Clinton is a member of the Greater Harlem Coalition. His organization is concerned that the neighborhood is already too saturated with over a dozen drug-related facilities. We really need other communities to take on some of this burden. 
McLennan says he's not surprised an attempt to open a similar type of facility in Philadelphia failed after community backlash there. I don't want this in my neighborhood or anybody else's. These centers remain illegal under a federal law that states you cannot operate, own, or rent a space for use of illegal substances. De Blasio. But when these New York City locations opened, the city's former mayor, Bill de Blasio, penned this letter of support. City agencies stand ready to ensure a successful launch, which includes a commitment to not take enforcement action against their operation. And recently, the Department of Justice announced they're evaluating whether sites like these could be opened nationwide. Do you have concerns that the federal government will look and say, we, we saw what you did and we don't approve? I don't because this is a, 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 a health intervention that's working. For now, people such as Monica Diaz are glad there's a new, safer place to use. As for the day when she doesn't have to... Do you have thoughts about getting clean? Or? They seem distant, but... Okay. Yeah. And Jake, the question that people on both sides of this of this issue have is, what is the future of these so-called uh, supervised injection sites? I mean, you've got New York City's current mayor who says he supports having sites like this in the city. But again, ultimately, what this all comes down to is the Department of Justice and what it ends up deciding. Jake. Thoughtful report about a very complicated issue. Jason Carroll, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're sorry at this time your call cannot be completed as dialed. Why your cell phone might not work next week. Stay with us. And in our tech lead today, if you have an older smartphone, it might no longer work starting next week. AT&T, which owns our parent company, is shutting down its 3G network on February 22nd. And that shutdown could also mean older home security systems stop working, as well as built-in car alert systems such as OnStar they might no longer be able to alert first responders during a crash. Now, some car companies are now offering software upgrades, and many home security companies have already switched users over to 4G and 5G networks. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, no worries. You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage now continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.